It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 34 uh, in our ongoing uh, series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. And we've been covering a 60-year period between 1914 and 1974. And I'm right at this crux where everyone would would expect me to uh, talk about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And uh, strangely, I am sort of skipping over that. Uh, In fact, I think I'm going to, I'm going to probably do one episode which summarizes some key events. And there's the reasons for that. It's sort of the same thing as I went through in my World War I and World War II, is there's certain things that to focus on them actually does not edify and it does not increase our spiritual fervor. It distracts us. And there's something about the Kennedy assassination that is uh, extremely alluring to the brain and it distracts. It's like studying demonology or angels uh, in scripture. It's a weird thing and it's some kind of weird uh, drug-like effect uh, upon the human psyche. And so I just wanna be watchful of that to make sure that the goal of this time is to focus us on Christ, uh, even though it does have this fun historical uh, narrative to it. It is a very significant event. Uh, There's going to be a couple significant events in this uh, time window as I am arriving in 1966 today. Uh, And that is, uh, we have Martin Luther King uh, Jr. who's also going to be assassinated. Uh, And so it's a time of great upheaval and a time of great unrest and conspiracy theories are going to sort of find their footing uh, in this time period where they where people are going to be convinced that the government did something and that uh, they're up to no good, which is going to continue through the Watergate scandal and into our current uh, day. And so, so much of what makes America, America today is flowing out of this segment of history that we're in. And even though it is a tactical maneuver for me not to uh, cover some of these things, it is actually sort of hard for me too, because uh, it is a critical uh, juncture uh, in American history. But I think I can summarize that when we start getting into the Vietnam War Uh, I'll just sort of bring it all together and catch us up to date. This message is so opposite of that, that it's almost, you could almost laugh out loud. Uh, This is like a a rather fun message, uh, just a different lens. Like instead of choosing the assassination of John F. Kennedy for me to choose this is, it's just humorous. And you'll you'll understand that as we go forward. But um, this message, is called Princeton versus Agnes Scott. Now, many of you have heard of Princeton University, and uh, you, you have to sort of pay homage uh, intellectually. It's like, oh yes, very smart people that go to Princeton. And Agnes Scott, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Agnes Scott. Uh, I don't know that it even, I don't even know if it still exists. It probably does, but I literally had never heard of it until I studied this story. And, but it was a small college down near Decatur, or in Decatur, uh, Georgia, near, near Atlanta. And these two were going to battle it out. Uh, the 1966 GE College Bowl. So back in the day, they used to have uh, these things called the College Bowl. I think they're trying to resurrect it now. I have no idea if it's been successful. 
but it was sort of this intellectual uh, debates, uh, knowledge-based uh, uh, competitions. I remember there was a, a, a old Disney movie with Kurt Russell in it. It was like the world's smartest man. I don't remember what it was called, uh, but somehow uh, he he did something. I, I get all of those. Cur- is, that, is that with the computer that wore tennis shoes? That's exactly what it was. Uh, and somehow I think he got zapped by a computer and he got all the knowledge of the computer inside of him. And it was very impressive, but he went to a college bowl and just dominated. And so uh, may that be an inspiration to all of us. Uh, but uh, this, I, I watched some of the college bowl, I actually watched this competition extremely interesting and, and fun. And you know, just the color schemes, they bring you back into those, those days of the 60s, 70s, uh, the bright colors and everything. And uh, these guys are smart, I have to admit. I mean, it's like I felt rather dumb. Uh, I got one, one question right. Uh, you know, it was some, something to do with what uh, weapon or armament uh, did David use to slay his you know, opponent in, a, in, in Elaw or something like that. And I was like, slingshot. Uh, I mean, I knew that was like buzzing, that one. I, I, I nailed it, guys. You would have been very impressed. <clears throat> so this, there was a common thinking in 1966, and that is trivia skews male. In other words, that male men are going to be far more dominant at trivia uh, than women. I don't know how the women feel about that in here. But uh, that was just the common uh, thinking at the time. And it had been proven many times over. The men seemed to gravitate towards it more. They seemed to be very dominant in this theater. And uh, then we come to 1966. So I'm going to go through. Now, when we're going through history of America, it's interesting because part of our history involves the marginalization or the oppression of certain people groups, and then you're going to see a fight in American history to see that change. And the racial issues that we have faced in our country, you're going to see things like affirmative action where there's almost like this inverted prejudice that takes place. And if you're white, then suddenly you feel and you, you begin to complain that things are biased against you. And I think it's dangerous to spend a lot of time as a, as a white person uh, complaining about anything. If you study what I've gone through in this series, uh, it is rather amazing how intensely black people were oppressed in this country. I mean, it's, it's actually rather shocking to any of us if we will take a look at it. Uh, women is another one, and this, this particular message is going to touch on that. Uh, and it's a tough one, you know, because biblically speaking, many uh, conservatives have a difficult time knowing how to appropriate that topic. I mean, it just seems like it's radioactive at a certain level. And if you're a girl, I don't know what it's like uh, for you to approach that topic. That must be rather fascinating. And because we see that Scripture is going to define a certain order of how the church functions, and we understand certain functions in a marriage and in a home. And, but how does that play out like value-wise? Is it a diminishment of value? Or is it just an issue of role and position? You know, one of the things I've oftentimes looked at is in the Old Testament, you have a system which is based on a king and a priesthood. So the king is gonna deal with the governmental elements and the priesthood is going to deal with the law and the implementation of God's word. And the, the priest is going to be a keeper, catch, catch my language on this, a keeper of the home, the house, the temple. 
Isn't that interesting? So in the Old Testament, you're going to have a king and a priest, and that priest is going to be over the house or the, the temple, and the king will be over the country. And I can't help but see a parallel there. And it, what, the reason I bring that up is to show you that I do not believe the Bible dismisses or diminishes in any way the role of the woman, the value of the woman. In fact, I think we have struggled in knowing how to interpret so that we could properly elevate in the way we should. There is clear scripture on these points, and I have multiple messages that I've given over the years to address some of that to help bring clarity, but it is a delicate issue and it's a hard one, especially in the Bible-believing side of things. There's like, well, the word of God is the word of God. It says it right there. And yet, how do we contextually even handle some of those things? It's very interesting. It's sort of like if I were to say, uh, you know, because it says that women ought not to speak, right? Well, that's a context uh, issue of in the church, very specifically context in church government. And so that does not mean, like, for instance, you could say my children are not allowed to speak. Uh, and that could be true in very specific situations. Like say I'm in an in-depth conversation with some people that came over, they're going through a rough time, and I, I asked the children to go into the other room so that we could focus, and then one of them comes in and is like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. It's like, shh, shh, hey, not now. Okay, in other words, there's a proper context for it, and in certain situations, I would say yes. It is good to say not now. This is not the place. And yet, okay, even in saying that, I'm, I'm walking on delicate territory, but at the same time, to understand the value of what God intended for a woman is actually very important for a healthy church. You'll notice that I put two other things on this list up here. I have blacks, I have women, I have disabled. That's another thing that's going to play into this particular message is I would say we're still in a juncture in our country of struggling with knowing how to honor disabled. And I, it's, we have multiple blind spots, and I think they just come with the package of humanity where it's hard to see. We have certain things that are normal, and then we struggle to see beyond that. The unborn, I would say in the years to come, it's very likely. I mean, it doesn't still to, to me, even right now, that the people that fight so hard for civil rights and for the weak and for the lowly cannot see that this is their cause. Why wouldn't you pick up that cause? An unborn baby, an unborn life? Come on. What? And yet they are the very people fighting against it. And so the great ironies that we sometimes face, it's sort of like the Ku Klux Klan wearing a cross. It's like, guys, I don't think you understand what that cross means. And so often we can see clearly on one point and miss another point. What I desire as a church is for us to be marked by love for all, even those that are antagonistic against us, that we love them, that even those that desire our demise, that desire our destruction, that we love them, that in every situation, if we see someone who is oppressed, then we treat them as royalty. So anyone on that list, as far as I'm concerned, my assignment towards uh, the blacks community, towards women, towards the disabled, towards the unborn, they're royalty to me. I want to treat them as the most important, as more important than myself. And in so doing, that's how I carry the kingdom of God into this world. And so, and I believe I can be biblically accurate in doing that. In other words, like, well, you don't want to empower uh, these things, do you? Yes, I do. 
I want to strengthen them the way God designed them to be. And so often, these in our history as, as a country have been massively impaired. So I know, I put a lot of scripture on one screen. It's usually not a very good idea. I think I was in a hurry. Uh, <clears throat> but look at this scene here. This is Matthew 28, 1 through 2, and then 5 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Isn't that funny how many Marys are lingering? This isn't even Mary, the mother of Jesus, too. We just have Marys everywhere. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So this angel is going to converse with the women. They're going to be terrified, right? The, the, the guards are, you know, white-faced and frozen. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! Isn't that a funny thing? Jesus is going to run into them, and he's going to say, Rejoice! I just think that is one of the most unique little phrases there. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. That's all we know he said. Rejoice! <laughs> Isn't that great? And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So these women have been given a commission. In fact, it's going to sound very similar to the Great Commission, which is in the same chapter, Matthew 28. And you know that this is happening before Jesus is going to appear to the disciples? You know who Jesus appears to first? Women. Mary's, to be specific. Mary, the name means rebellious. So this is a symbol of Eve in every regard. So go back to the Garden of Eden, and you have a woman. And this, I feel sorry for women throughout all of history. You know, how many times has Eve been brought up? Yeah, it was the woman that, uh, you know, did this to the man. Of course, the man is equally responsible in this storyline, but wow, does the woman get a bad rap. And yeah, we have to be very watchful of women. You know, what, what fruit are they bringing to us? And so, you know, sniff it out, test it. Which tree did that come from? And so it's been a hard road for women, right? And God is going to come and he's going to see this and he's going to send forth his son and he's going to do a work on the cross and he's going to resurrect from the dead. He's going to prove himself the son of God. And he is going to correct something that took place in the Garden of Eden. Just think about this. It was the woman right, that is going to engage with the serpent. So what is God going to do? He's going to come to the woman first, and he's going to give the woman the message. He's going to give the woman the gospel first. Guys, I don't know if you see how profound that is and how lost that is in Christian history. And then he's going to tell them, go and tell the disciples. The ones that bore witness to the very disciples were women. And so any argument that is out there of the diminishment of the role of women, even in evangelism, that there has been a commission given, not just to men, but to women, to the church, we have been entrusted with something. And so to not miss the dignity that God is bringing, purposely bringing to rectify something that took place in the garden. 
All right, yeah, you once took a, uh, you know, a fruit to, to the man. Now I want you to take this, and we're going to change everything. This is the truth. Take that to the man. Recovering the dignity of femininity. So there's something about it. Like for me, I'm a huge fan of femininity. And, and I know most guys would say, so am I. What, what, what do you think, Eric? Uh, yeah, but I don't just mean the beauty of it. I mean the calling of it. The excellence of what God did in constructing femininity. And, you know, when I look at uh, what has happened in our country and in, in this 60 year period that I'm covering, there have been moments, if you've been able to go through the different sessions of the episodes on this, where your heart is bleeding and you just, you want to step into history and you want to behave differently than the way people were behaving at that time. And that's the way I feel in regards to so many of the oppressions of our history in and towards the black people. It's, it's horrifying to me. And I, I keep thinking to myself, would I have been silent or would I have done something? And it's hard for me to answer that. All I know is I can do something today. That's all I can do as an answer because I don't know. You, you never like to look back at the days of Noah and say, would I have gotten on the ark? Or would I have, you know, hurled rocks at the ark? I mean, where am I in the storyline? Dear Lord, uh, give me grace because I don't know what separates me from those people that made a wrong decision. And so I always want to be very slow to cluck my tongue at previous generations. All I know is I'm alive today. This is my opportunity to live differently. And I want to live in such a way that gives life and gives strength and gives boldness and gives courage to those around me. And if there is anyone that is oppressed, that needs to be my assignment. But I want to share that same thing with you, that if there is anyone that is oppressed, if you see any weight that is unduly pressing upon any soul in this world, whether it's a physical impairment, whether it's a, a financial impairment, whether it's a relational impairment, whether it's a skin and uh, a prejudice impairment, uh, whether it's a gender impairment, I do not care what impairment it is. What do we do? We say that is the one I want to love. That is the one I want to care for. So the 1965 champions, now we're in 1966 College Bowl, okay? And so the 1965 champions were the Princeton's, uh, Princeton men's team. And yes, as predictable as the sun to rise, uh, Princeton yet again wins. I mean, what, what do they not win, right? I mean, we're talking about anything that has to do with smarts. Yeah, they're very, very good, guys. Now, Princeton at the time is an all-male school that was very accustomed to winning, so they didn't accept women into their school and for another three years, maybe this had something to do with it. I don't want to give anything away, but some of you could probably guess uh, where this story is going. But that's what a good foreshadow is in a story, right? So I, I can't, sorry, that is a terrible picture, but that's like a video picture, you know, taken off of uh, the screen and then blown up probably far bigger than it should have been. Uh, but you can at least get the idea, uh, right? So there's Princeton University in the 1966 College Bowl. Lin Yu is going to write an article about this, which is very fascinating. Suited up in matching black jackets, they looked right out of Mad Men, right out of a Mad Men episode. Sorry, right out of a Mad Men episode. They introduced themselves with breezy self-assurance, with names like Jim, Steve, and Frank. They ooze self-confidence. 
Their study sessions, speaking of the Princeton boys, purportedly involved tossing around practice questions and beers at their professor's house. They were rather lax about it, in other words, just sort of jocular about it. It's like, yeah, we're going to win anyways, you know, hey, let's have some fun doing it. Uh, they had never heard of Agnes Scott before. One of their friends had told them it was a writing academy. What is a writing academy? How do they get to compete in the college bowl? It's not a writing academy, by the way, but that's the rumor to the Princeton guys. It's funny, they know all about all things, but they don't know about Agnes Scott and what kind of school it was. Agnes Scott, an all-female school that didn't belong in a championship round. What are they doing in the championship round? How did they get here? How did they even qualify? I mean, are they a big enough school to even compete? You can just imagine some of the questions that are going out. And they're gonna, they made it all the way to the championship round to play against Princeton? An all-boys school against an all-girls school. Okay, can you guys feel the tension here? I don't know who you're voting for or who you're cheering for, guys, because those Princeton guys are very impressive. Are you cheering for Princeton? It doesn't sound like it. I can already tell your bias uh, in this. So there's a picture of the, the, the uh, Agnes Scott girls team. There's four on each team. And uh, Karen, this is a hard name to pronounce, especially when I've never heard it pronounced. Uh, Giriald, does that sound like it would be right? I'm going to go with that, even though that could be incorrect. Someone out there will email me a correct uh, statement. But Karen Giriald, uh, we, had a very, we had very serious study sessions and took it very seriously. Lynn Yu says, engineers at Agnes Scott had fashioned a countertop simulation of the College Bowl studio using doorbells as buzzers. Eight girls practiced against each other through the fall and winter of 65 under the direction of their coach, Eleanor Hutchins. It's been said over the years that trivia skews male. You ever heard that before? The assumption is not that women are less intelligent. The assumption is that for various reasons, structural discrimination, biology, increased pressure, women aren't as able to compete. So this is the common notion at that time. You know, there were all sorts of common notions about black people too, that black people can't handle uh, certain types of jobs. They can't handle certain weights. They will always go this way. They will do this. There was a scientific study, it was evolutionary, saying that the... Uh, the, the phrenology or the brain uh, substance of a black person hinders them from doing anything other than menial labor. And this was high-level science in the mid-1800s, which then is going to excuse the populace of America for actually saying, well, we're doing them a favor. We're doing them a favor by giving them menial labor. However, that science was bogus. Phrenology, look it up. You're going to find that it's called a quacks science now. And yet that was deemed the intellectuals, you know, thinking back then. And if you were smart, you used terms like phrenology. Oh, yeah, the latest phrenology study is going to say this. Science isn't always as trustworthy as they try and make themselves out to be. Melinda Snow was the captain of the 66 Agnes Scott team. This is what she said. I never felt that we were a David and Goliath. I was assuming that Agnes Scott was an excellent college, which it was, and I was assuming that we were representing one of the best women's colleges and that we would do well and nobody was better than we were. Well, I'm glad she thought that. No one else was thinking that going into this. The veteran host, his name was Robert Earle. So I, without showing you a video of this, you can at least sort of get your mental picture of it. You know all the players. And I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen something like this, but the, the, 
the four, uh, the two teams will be next to each other and they have buzzers. And so it's, I guess it feels a little like Jeopardy. I, I think to most people that know the college bowl, they look at Jeopardy as sort of the, uh, the poor man's version of this uh, because it's more suited to an audience like television than this was. This wasn't actually built for television. This was built for the collegiates to train for and to, to do their, uh, it's like a sport. And then they happened to start putting it on television. And then people would really get into it. But it wasn't done for television, whereas Jeopardy is actually made for television. So Lin Yu continues. She says, college bowl participants did not need to wait until the host finished the question to buzz in. As soon as they knew the answer, they were welcome to try for points. So Steve Chernikoff, Princeton University's captain, interrupted Robert Earle's first question. The year in which Napoleon made his last bid for power was also the year in which Andrew Jackson won a battle in a war and chimed in with the correct answer, 1815. I don't know how quick you guys were with that one. Did you guys have that one down? Yeah, of course, some of you could have skipped to the bottom of the screen and gotten it. <clears throat> Lin Yu continues, thus began Princeton's opening tear. Princeton's, Princeton was moving along nicely, up 50 to nothing, when Earl read, read what memorable five-word command is associated with the naval engagement in which the Shannon beat the Chesapeake? Senior Karen Garyald, an English major, buzzed in with Ag Agnes Scott's first correct response to the game. Don't give up the ship, she said with a southern lilt. Oh, well done, Agnes Scott. I mean, hey, they, they know something, guys. Yeah, I know they were behind 50 to nothing, but they know something. Lin Yu continues, at the end of the first half, the Agnes Scott girls led 100 to 60. Whoa. <laughs> Catherine Bell, a philosophy major, and Betty Butler, an English major, rounded out the other two spots on the team. But in the second half, the Princeton boys battled their way back into the front runner position. Oh, this is getting intense, guys. Answering a series of questions on military weapons, Silas Marner and the Battle of Lepanto. With less than 20 seconds left in the game, the Princeton boys were up 215 to 190, and they were poised to win. All right, should we just stop there? I mean, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, who really cares? <laughs> All right, with only 15 seconds on the clock, Earl threw out a 10-pointer. Remember, what are they behind? They're behind by uh, 25 points. So with only 15 seconds on the clock, Earl threw out a 10-pointer. Who is said to have formulated the law of conservation of mass and energy? Butler rang in. Einstein, she answered, putting Agnes Scott within striking distance. So what are they down? 15 points? Princeton was still ahead barely at 215 to 200. 10 seconds left. Karen Gerriald. I haven't mentioned this yet, but she was the first blind student at Agnes Scott. So uh, she can't see, obviously. She's blind. But what does that mean she can't see? She can't see the clock. Isn't that an interesting statement? She can't see that there's only 10 seconds left. Everyone else is panicking. And when you see a clock and you see that there's 10 seconds left, it does something to you, all right? So there's Karen Gerriald. Isn't that amazing? She was a blind student, and she's competing in the college bowl. They asked for no special favors, and they wanted everything to run as it normally would. So she had to work completely off of what she was hearing. And so she had to either try and keep score in her mind, she had to try and keep a sense of time in her mind, and, but they did nothing extra for her. Snow recalled looking at the scoreboard and doing the math sum in her head. 
So I guess they don't show the, the scores so that the teams don't know. That's, that's my guess. I can't tell. Karen Guriald could not. She was the only person in the studio who could neither see the scoreboard nor the clock. She had no cognizance of the pressure they were under. Here's what Karen Guriald said. Uh, we had fallen behind. I had assumed we had lost. I didn't know they had a clock. If I had known, I wouldn't have been able to focus. Karen Guriald said this, as the 10 seconds ticked down, Earl read the final question. Bucephalus and Roan Barbary were steeds. For 20 points, what were Balmung and Durandal? Snow looked at her fellow teammates. Butler inhaled. Bell flinched. Two seconds. And then something incredible happened. For 20 points, what were Balmung and Durandal? <laughs> I mean, what in the world? No one knew. The other three girls didn't. And there's uh, Karen, who can't see anything, right? This is what she says. I remember it so clearly, and the way I remember it is something almost surreal. At first, I remember saying to myself, we don't know the answer. And then I remember as if the Lord had transported me back to my French class the previous semester. I could smell the grass outside the open window of the classroom, and I could hear my professor lecturing on medieval literature. In this French literature class, I had to concentrate on every word so not to get lost. I thought about the question, and it transported me back to that classroom, and I heard my professor say the words, the story of Roland and Roland's sword is Durandal. Karen Guriald's consciousness snapped back into the studio. I wondered if we should say weapons or swords, she recalled. I'll just say it. All of this being transported to her French literature classroom, thinking of what to say, transpired in milliseconds. With just one second left on the clock, Guriald shouted, swords! Agnes Scott took the 20 points and with it the game. Final tally, 220 to 215. Agnes Scott. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, that's just a great story. Listen to this, guys. This is just a meditation out of that. The power of not seeing what others see. There is so much bait, and I, underneath it I say the unexpected strength of Karen Guriald. See, what looks at first like a weakness, to have a blind uh, contestant on your team and to say, we don't want any favors, don't, no, don't give us anything special. Uh, it looks like a weakness, when in actuality you'll see that it's transformed into a strength in this story, because when you have, and if any of you have ever had a time crunch or your time pressure and you're looking at the clock and you see it's going three, two, your mind can lock up. And so in a strange way, not seen in this storyline was an advantage for her, which is an extraordinary statement because most of us would say, I'll take sight any day of the week. In our spiritual life, there's a truth in this. And there are things that others see and they focus on all the time. And if you heard my sermon yesterday, I made a statement that one of the things that I purposely avoid is news. And there are things that I deliberately choose not to see. And you could call it a certain blindness that I have. And yet, it's so that I can fixate on that which is true. And it changes my attitude where so many other people are giving way to strain and stress and they're concerned about the economy because they're constantly watching different statements about the economy. I mean, believe me, I get uh, emails all the time telling me 
all these terrible things that are happening. It's, it's weird. I always know what's happening at a certain level, even though I'm not watching the news. Somehow it just filters down to you. And uh, you end up knowing what's going on. But it's actually one of my secrets of strength. I would say one of the reasons I'm able to be level-headed and be able to see through fog is I'm not walking purposely into thicker fog banks and trying to see. I am purposely fixing my gaze on that which is true and lovely and noble of good report, and I am gazing upon Christ. And so you could call it blindness. I would call it wisdom. But it's a, it's a form of blindness that the world would consider blindness. Like, Eric, how can you function if you don't know this? How can you not see this? How can you not stare at this? Everyone else in the world is staring at this right now, and you're not. Yeah, and that's the reason why I'm happy. You see, there's, you don't have to do as the world dictates. And so, you know, as I call it, the unexpected strength of Karen Gurriald is I'm not proposing that you go blind uh, in a physical sense. I'm saying that there is a spiritual choice that you make of where to put your eyesight. And when you put it where the world is putting it, the world will control you. You are steered by the world. You are steered by the spirit of the age. But when you put your gaze on that which God is saying, and you focus there. In every situation in life, there's going to be an appeal from the enemy, or we could say from the world, to say, panic, concern yourself. Your, your days are numbered. The economy's going to collapse. Do something. Some, you have to solve your riddles. And, or, you could put your gaze on the word of God. What does God say right now? What is his news report right now? What does his clock say? One of the principles in my life is if I ever feel rushed and someone's like, you have to make a decision now. My answer is no then. What? No, 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 no. You need to make a good decision now. My answer is no, I will not be rushed. And so I have passed over multiple things because there was a rush associated with it. Nope, I will not do it if there's a rush associated because I know God teaches patience. God is not going to bring me to this moment and then rush me. He's been in control this whole time. And so that's always the signal to my soul that something's off. And that's a principle of my life right there. And so it's a way of looking at things. I know it sounds funny, but spirit-enabled blindness. Blindness in a positive spin mode. Because blindness is something Jesus heals in Scripture. So I don't want to necessarily say, oh, God's intent is that we are blind. It's that God has a form of blindness that is actually very powerful in our lives. So listen to this, seeing only what God sees and blind to the earthly threats. Right now, there's a whole bunch of threats that are coming against you. And you can say, what? I didn't know about that. Well, good. Good. You don't need to know about that. There's all sorts of people that are conjecturing about the doom of the church, about how terrible the days ahead are going to be, how hard it's going to be for us in the upcoming days. Yeah, you see, you could focus on that right now, or you could focus on the faithfulness, the goodness of your God, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you who beckons you to come boldly into his throne room of grace where you can receive mercy and grace for help in a time of need. You see, there is something that he wants you to see, and that is his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his redemptive power right now. 
The world is saying, hey, look at this. You better look at this. And God's saying in a very still small voice, you want to make it through this, look at this. Keep your gaze focused here. So here's some fun illustrations. Elisha, which I think I've brought up, I don't know, three or four times, it seems like in our semester that we've had. We've only been together three weeks. Elisha and his servant are going to be surrounded by the Syrian army. The Syrian king is mad, and he wants to put down Elisha. And the servant is going to step out early in the morning drinking his coffee, and he's going to see the Syrians surrounding him. And he's going to panic, you know, because that's what we all do. We see the clock ticking down three seconds, two seconds, and it looks bad, guys. And yet Elisha's going to come out, and he's going to respond completely differently than his servant. He's going to say, open my servant's eyes that he would see. He's going to say to his servant, greater are those that are with us than those that are with them. And you can look out, and it's like, there's only two of them. Or is there? You see, Elisha is going to see, and his servant's eyes are going to be open to see it too, that the mountains surrounding them are full of horses and chariots of fire all around. You see, Elisha seems almost blind to the threat that is in front of him because his eyes are able to see something supernatural. What we want is supernatural eyesight. Earthly blindness in a certain regard so that we could see heavenly things. Or so that the earthly things would not dominate our attention so that the heavenly things could rule and reign in our reasoning. What do you see right now as you look at our culture? Do you see just the church backed up on its haunches, ready to collapse? Do you see the weakness of our culture? Do you see the weakness of our economy? Do you see the vulnerability of our political ideology today? And some of you are like, thank you for reminding me, Eric. Or do you see the fact that God reigns on high and that he is going to come in the clouds and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that he is ruling and reigning at present and all things are underneath his feet, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world, that if God be for us, who can stand against us, that no weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. What do you see? You see, at every juncture, we are making a choice of where our eyes are fixed. What do we see? What are we marveling at? The evil of the world or the beauty of God's faithfulness? Betsy Tenboom. So Betsy and Corey are sort of going to create a contrast. And Corey is the one telling the stories because Betsy is going to die at Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp. But Betsy is going to be a symbol in all of Corey's writings of seeing things with the right eyes. And Corey's always going to sort of blame herself for being the one that sees out of the worldly perspective. And she's going to see those Nazi guards who are going to be beating up these, uh, these Jews and, of course, Betsy and Corey themselves. But Betsy is going to feel that steel-toed boot multiple times in her ribs. And Corey's going to be so upset and she hates these guards. And Betsy is going to see something very different. And I just want us to test our souls of what we see, especially in those situations where someone is harming us, deliberately harming us. They want to see our demise. They want to see our ruin. Those aren't the easiest people to love. And yet Betsy saw someone in need of Jesus. She saw someone that was hurting, 
someone that was abused, someone that had been taught lies. And she wanted to see them set free. Whoa! You see, she didn't see what Corey was seeing. She seemed blind to the evil. What she saw was someone in need of life, someone in need of truth, someone in need of redemption, someone in need of being unlocked from their prison chains. What do we see? When we look around at this world and we see these agendas that are being hatched to destroy the church, to destroy truth in our generation, when we see movements that are anti-Christ, that are anti-us in this room, how do we respond? Do we see what Corey sees and we hate and we revile back? Or do we see what Betsy sees? And we see a world that is lost. We see a world in need of Jesus. We see people that have been traumatized and abused and they need to be set free. And the only thing that will set them free is Jesus Christ. So what do we see? Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand gets released from prison. And uh, what was it? I forgot if it was nine years, 11 years, uh, extreme torture. I mean, this is one rough period of time. And so everyone wanted to know, because he was prisoner number one in Romania. <laughs> I mean, he got to start the whole thing off. It's like, you! He was the first one to stand up at the, uh, at the, the big gathering where the KGB, the communists, were trying to move the pastors into a position to, of compromise to preach the communist agenda instead of the truth of the gospel. And the first guy to stand up and defy it was Richard Wormbrand. And so they were going to make an example out of him, and he was going to come back in front of all those pastors and say that he was wrong. And instead, he never broke. And when he's released, all the Christians are surrounding him like, tell us what it was like. What, what, what was it like? And he shocked everyone by saying, well, they gave us instruments. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They gave you instruments? Yeah. And with those instruments, we praise the Lord. Wait, 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 the communists, the anti-God communists gave you instruments so that you could praise the Lord? Yeah, yeah. And everyone's looking at him going, what? That doesn't make any sense. They gave us chains. And with those chains, we praise the Lord. You see, it depends on which lens you're looking at. You see, if you're aimed at hate and at getting back at those that are harming you, then everything goes negative on you. But if you're looking through the lens of love and redemption, you see even the chains that bind you as being a gift from the prison guards so that you can praise your Lord with those chains. That's an amazing perspective. Brother Andrew. Here's a, Brother Andrew had a VW bug and he would cross the border into... Uh, the Soviet Union or the, uh, what was behind the Iron Curtain at the time, different communist-ruled countries uh, with this, but he would carry Bibles in there. And this is his prayer that he would oftentimes pray, his trademark prayer as he approached the border crossing in his VW Beetle. Lord, in my luggage I have scripture. I want to take, your, I want to, take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray... Make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. There's all sorts of uses for this message. Uh, there is a spiritual blindness. And he has so many extraordinary stories of going to the, the border and the guards could not see it. There was one time he actually set the Bibles out on, uh, the, uh, on the, the seat next to him in the open 
just to sort of prove the power of God. And sure enough, I mean, they're doing a deep examination of the, the vehicle in front, you know, taking seats out and looking under everything. And they get to him and he just goes right on through. And over and over again, he watched this miracle happen, that God is in control of the eyes. Not just the eyes of the enemy, our eyes. And he wants to train our gaze of what to see and how to see it. So if we're going to talk about, uh, you know, blindness, we might as well talk about deafness too. Because there is another gift that God wants to give us, and that is to hear only what God hears and be deaf to the yammering of the devil. I don't know if you've ever had the devil yammer. Uh, that's like uh, talk a lot in your ear. But he is a talker. And it is critical that you learn how to go deaf to the devil. I had a three-year period before Ellerslie started where the devil was constantly talking. And he was saying the same thing all day long, every day. You're nothing. Shut up. No one wants to listen to this. You're already expired. You're way past your prime. Nonstop. And it was so loud. And it took me a while to, first of all, recognize that wasn't God's name, God's voice. Isn't that a critical thing to decide? It's like, okay, that's not God. That's important. But then it was to resist it. Okay, if this isn't God, in the authority of Christ's name, no. And I, I would go back to Paul's statement that, about the thorn in the flesh, where I, you know, I've prayed three times that this would be taken away, and you know, hey, it's still here type of a thing. That's what it was for me. It was like this voice would not leave. So I started recognizing that it was to my advantage because every time I resisted it, I got stronger. It was like weights in a weight room. Every day I would wake up and it was like I was doing curls and presses all day long as I was resisting this. And guess what? It's what made me strong. One of the reasons I am strong even today and I'm confident in my calling is because of those three years. Uh, and I became deaf to it. It still was there. It was still making a huge noise in my life, but I was leveraging it unto strength. And all it would do is turn me into God's truth. So I was repeating God's truth in my mind constantly, even though I had this barking devil over here. There's a lesson right there. You see, the devil may be talking big talk to you. The devil may be coming up with all sorts of things in the natural realm saying, look at this. What are you going to do about this? How are you going to handle this? But to ask God to give you a spiritual blindness and a spiritual deafness to what the devil is attempting to persuade you to take in, to imbibe, and to give you a spiritual sharpness of an eyesight and a hearing to hear and to see what he is doing. And when we can walk that way, where we can be sharp towards God's things and deaf and blind towards what the devil is doing, well, that's called strong, victorious Christianity. And that's what we're all after. In American history, I can't say that this is the watershed moment when this happened. At the same time, this is a critical juncture in American history where you're going to see this idea that women are unable they, they just belong in the home and they can't actually function and do much uh, in life. And this is going to shock people. It's like, did you see what they did? It was a blind woman that defeated Princeton. 
Isn't that great? I mean, that is like, that's, that's choice uh, meat right there. You know, that's, uh, you know, filet mignon. Uh, that is just really a good statement. And that's the way God is. He takes weak things to shame the wise, to shame the strong. That's what he does. And he has chosen us. Now, I don't know why we get the privilege of being weak. Have you ever thought about that? It's like, why, why couldn't we be the powerful, the prestigious, the well-known? Instead, we're the weak. We're known as the church. And it just goes with the package, guys. It just looks weak to the world. When you serve Jesus with your life, it looks weak. Sort of like you lost a screw somewhere along the line. It's like, oh, they're one of those. I don't know how many of you like being one of those. It's a unique challenge. I, I've had it. I remember sitting at a Starbucks and it was at one of those community tables and s some lady set her computer right across from me and I was working and she kept making these noises sort of like she was wanting someone to take note, you know, like, oh, ah, oh. So I look up and I, I was sort of like, do you need something? And then she, that's all she needed. And then she engaged and then she was talking. And so I couldn't get any work done from that point. I was like, uh, and she wanted, she asked me some question and I told her, I don't remember what I said, whether I'm a pastor or, and she goes, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> and you know, what do you say to that? It's like, yes, I am. <laughs> Isn't it impressive? But then she spent all her time berating those that are like me, you know, and saying how dumb we are and how ignorant we are of all that is going on in the world, right? And it feels good. It feels real good uh, to be berated with everyone at the long table listening in, right? <laughs> because as a believer, we don't do the same back. I don't say, because I mean, I could easily say, oh, you're one of those, right? And that would make total sense to all of us in here. That's one of those. And yet we don't have that list of the, those. We have those that need Jesus. This was one of them. And so how, Lord Jesus, do I not see what the world wants me to see right now as I stare across, as my flesh, as my natural man wants to see, but how do I see what you want me to see? How do I hear what you want me to hear? Because I'm hearing her belittle, I'm hearing her put down, I'm hearing her diminish, but what can I hear from the Spirit of God? She needs my love. She needs my truth. So what are you seeing and what are you hearing? Father, I ask that you would sensitize us afresh, that spiritually we would be attuned to your voice, that our eyes would see what you see, our ears would hear what you hear, our hearts would beat with your burdens. Lord, there's a lost and dying world out there, and I pray that we would learn to look for the royalty in our midst, those that are oppressed, those that are marginalized, those that need their hands lifted in the battle just as Moses' arms were lifted in the battle against the Amalekites. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would look for arms to lift so that we could see battles turn in their lives. Lord Jesus, we submit to you today with expectation that you're going to do a wonderful work in us and through us. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. 
and our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.